Hello, I'm Charles Cooper and welcome to Kingdom Alive, a teaching ministry about the soon coming royal reign of Jesus Christ. In this session, I continue my series, Disciples, Disciple, Understanding the Gospel of God. No question is more haunting to the disciples than will there be negative consequences for unfaithful disciples. The question has two aspects. First, is it possible for a disciple to be unfaithful to Jesus Christ? The second question concerns negative consequences. Some would answer yes, some disciples would answer no. The real question is what does scripture teach? In the parable of the talent, we see two groups of people, faithful and unfaithful. However, the more probative question is this, are they believers and unbelievers, or are both, are all three, believers? Let's investigate. Bibles open, minds engaged, let's study. What in the world is the gospel of God? Now, you know, bad news travels fast, they say. And I realize that in some way and under some conditions, um, what I'm telling you is based on how you've been taught and churches that you may have gone through during your lifetime, all churches have a, an emphasis, some have this and that. You have to become a student of the word, a Berean. You, you have to become a Berean. Paul talked about the Bereans were people who went to listen to Paul preach but then they went and got their own Bible. And they confirmed whether what they were hearing from Paul was in accord with the Word of God. It is my hope that that's what you're doing. Because I realize that for the majority of you, I know that what I'm teaching you is new to you. It's new to me. I'm only, I've spent the last two and a half years intensely focused on this because I was stirred in my spirit when I discovered something that I had not seen in scripture, though I had studied it for almost 40 years. I don't, I do not hold you um, in anything but respect for you. If I was sitting where you're sitting, listening to me teach this, I would be, I would have this huge grain of salt. And every time you say something, I'd probably take a lick. Because I'm hearing something that I have not heard before and at my age, I'm wondering, well, why? 
So I understand. And so when I ask you the question whether will there be negative consequences for unfaithful disciples at the Bema seat judgment? The answer is yes. There are going to be negative consequences, profound consequences. And the reason I know this to be true is because I understand what the gospel of God is and what it is that God is going to do when he finally physically manifests on this earth permanently. The gospel of God is extremely significant. Jesus spent three years of his life on this earth focused on it and it alone. He preached the implications of it profoundly. Therefore, you need to understand that the gospel of God is the promise, it's the promise of the final, permanent, physical manifestation of God on the earth in sovereign power. That's a definition of the gospel of God. It had been articulated in more than one way, as so many things in the Bible are, and people knew it, particularly at the time that Jesus was on the earth, they knew the gospel of God as God is going to bring a kingdom to the earth by his Messiah who would have these great benefits for the Jews. They had built their theology that God was going to come and set up a kingdom and the Jews were going to be number one on the top and it was just going to be wonderful and glorious. Jesus refocused them to the fact that the gospel of God is ultimately a message of judgment. It's a judgment because the very first thing that God is going to do when he physically, permanently manifests on this earth is judgment. The very first thing he does. In fact, Revelation chapter 6 verses 12 to 17, which you can read, depicts what that scene is going to be like. It says that when God the Father physically manifests his permanent presence on earth, it will be a throne, magnificent and glorious, that the wicked will run to hide, and the righteous will look up for their redemption draweth nigh. Very important. Now, the, the gospel of God is not the gospel of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is a promise of transformation which will remove you from the wrath of God. Spiritually. 
The gospel of God is a promise of judgment. The gospel of Christ is a promise of spiritual salvation. Spiritual salvation is one way to escape the wrath of God. Without it, there is no escape. The gospel of God requires repentance. Jesus came boldly, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. John the Baptist preached, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus taught his 12 disciples and the 70, go and teach, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He closes the gospel of Luke with telling the disciples, go into all the world, tell all the nations what? Repent for the forgiveness of your sins. Repentance is not expressing faith preeminently. It is recognizing your position in the face of God and then recognizing that God and God alone must have a remedy. And God's remedy is faith in the promise. What has God promised? If you live a certain way, I will declare you righteous. You have to live a certain way, which is exactly the message of John the Baptist. John said, if you bring forth fruit worthy of Salvation, repentance, forgiveness, it demonstrates what's truly in the heart. And since God only really knows the heart, it is only he that can know at what point your belief in his promise is authentic. Only God knows that. We don't. The gospel of Christ requires faith. Faith in the promise connected with who Jesus Christ is, which all must believe. The failure, the failure to recognize the distinction between the gospel of God and the gospel of Christ results in errors of interpretation concerning the eschatological end. This is where the problem is. It's what is God going to do when he comes for those who claim to be disciples. The gospel of God speaks of judgment on the ungodly living at that time. It does not speak about a resurrection. There is no resurrection connected with the gospel of God. It only speaks to those who are alive at the appearing of God and whether they will be righteous or not. The Father, in fact, Jesus tells us in John, he says, listen, the Father, in fact, judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son. This was totally new. When Jesus said this, his audience, must have, the jaws must have hit the ground because this was totally new as so much connected with the promises of the Old Testament, Jesus is the fulfillment of it. And what was thought that God would do, God will do it, but through the Son, which was totally new. And he has granted him, the Son, the right to pass judgment because he is the Son of Man. I can do nothing on my own. I judge only as I hear, and my judgment is just 
because I do not seek my own will, but the will of him who sent me. All judgment has now been placed in the hands of Jesus Christ. Rewards are in the hands of the Father. Judgment has been given to the Son. The gospel of Christ speaks of our transformation. It speaks of the deliverance of the righteous, whether dead or alive. Thus, what we need to be concerned about ultimately is the great divide that is going to occur at the eschatological end. Now, I'm using the word eschatological because I want you to know it. It's a word that refers to all the events connected with the return of Jesus Christ, the judgment of the sheep and goat, setting up a kingdom, Bema Seat judgment, thousand-year reign of Christ. All of those events are what are called the eschatological end. It means all the events connected with the return of Jesus Christ. I want you to know that word. Now, the Bible is very clear. It's unmistakable. Nobody misses this. That in connection with the eschatological end, with the appearing of God on earth, there's going to be a great divide. The Bible portrays that division as wheat versus weeds, God, good trees versus bad trees, good seed versus bad seed, good fish versus bad fish, sheep versus goats. There's nobody is confused that Jesus says when he, when he returns in the process of setting up his kingdom, there's going to be a great division of living humanity. Everybody knows this. Everybody believes it. Everybody knows that this is what is taught in the New Testament. The problem comes in, however, when it comes to believers. Now, I know that I, I, I'm pretty sure that most of you have probably been taught all your life. Most important thing is to go to heaven when you die. You don't want to go to hell. You don't want you want to turn. You don't want to burn. You want to shake. You don't want to bake. Okay. And this is how they got us to get in church. We, we were all at church and they kept preaching, telling us we're going to hell and you need to get saved and believe in Jesus and, you know, come down and be baptized. And this is what we all believe. And once we got saved, it, it, everything just kind of melted into one thing. It, it's all going to be great, guys. We're all going to go to heaven. We're all just going to be fine. And I was taught that. But I must say, I never, I never bought the whole hook, line, and sinker about once you're saved, then, hey, it's all glorious. Now, growing up in the black community in the South, with them having come through slavery and come through all of the, the bad stuff, theology got to be totally about going to heaven and getting new slippers and wearing new gold, getting a gold crown and a gold robe, and we were just going to get wings I mean, it was, wow. And, and this is what we were taught. And it was taught as relief from this world that you're finally going to get to live in a house and have all of the luxuries that the 
world had. We're going to only get that when Jesus comes because we're going to go to heaven and it's going to be glorious. The streets are paved. I never forget it. Streets are paved with gold. I remember that. I remember as a kid thinking, wow, you know, God got mo- if God got that much gold that he can pave streets with it. Wow. It's a great idea. I mean, it's nice. Just not what the Bible is telling you. There is one particular parable that Jesus gave that bothered me. It always bothered me. And this is it. Matthew 25, 14 to 30. This one didn't make sense to me because I couldn't understand it because what I knew it to be saying was what everybody kept telling me it ain't saying. They would tell me this is not talking about Christians. Well, it half is talking about Christians and unchristians, believers and unbelievers. And I just never believed it. I never believed it, but I didn't know what it I didn't know what it was saying. I couldn't make nobody was helping me to understand what it meant. And I knew I knew what it said, but since nobody else was saying it, I said I couldn't be right. This is Jesus giving one of his parables, for it is just like a man about to go on a journey. The man, of course, is Jesus. He called his own servants and entrusted his possessions to them. To one he gave five talents, to another two talents, and to another one talent, depending on each one's ability. That's a key idea. We'll come back to that. Then he went on a journey. Immediately, the man who had received five talents went put them to work and earned five more. In the same way, the man with two earned two more. But the man who received one talent went off, dug a hole in the ground, and hid his master's money. Okay. After a long time. Now, notice that it says after a long time. I find that fascinating. After a long time, the master of those servants came and settled account with them. The man with two talents also approached. He said, Master, you gave me two talents. Uh, let's see, I'll skip five. I got to go back and pick up Big John. Uh, for some reason, I must have left it out. Well, anyway, the man who with two talents approached him and said, Master, you gave me two talents. I've earned two more talents. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You are faithful over a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Share the master's joy. The man who had received one talent also approached and said, Master, I know you are a harsh man reaping where you haven't sown, gathering where you haven't scattered seed. So I was afraid and I went off and hid your talent in the ground. See, here is your money. I didn't lose it. His master replied to him, you evil, lazy servant. If you knew that I reap where I haven't sown and gather where I haven't scattered, then you should have deposited my money with the bankers and I would have received my money back with interest when I returned. So take the talent from him, give it to the one who has 10 talents, for to everyone who has, more will be given and he will have more than enough. But from the one who does not have, even what he has, will be taken away from him. And it continues. And throw this good-for-nothing servant 
into the outer darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now, everything about that is uncomfortable. The obvious question is, what's the difference? If you have time when you're home and you have, you're just kind of sitting there reading your Bible, you, read, you take the uh, illustrations that I gave you, good seed, bad seed, good feet, bad fish, sheep, goat, and you look at all of those, and then you look at the parable of the talent, and what's the difference? What's the difference between them? Because there's a very clear difference. That difference is important. Now, the first question you got to answer is, who do the servants represent? The master obviously called his servants, trusted them with his possession, and then he went away. He came back, and then he asked for his servants to give him an accounting. Now, that... Come in. Many would say the faithful, the faithful are believers, but the unfaithful are unbelievers. Now, this is how this is probably taught by the majority of evangelicals. The, the two guys who proved to be faithful are believers. The, the one guy who was unfaithful is an unbeliever. And as an unbeliever, of course, he receives the due penalty of his unbelieving, sinful life. Now, as to whether it is believer versus unbeliever, um, I can just tell you, it never made sense to me. That never made sense to me. I never accepted it, never, even though that's what I was taught. Even at Dallas, I remember going through the book of Luke with my, one of my favorite professors, Dr. Bach, whom I adore. He's a great man. He really is. Um, but this is the position that most take, that it's, it's believer, unbeliever, and that the unbeliever proved to be an unbeliever, and as a result, he is going to get cast into hell, which they take being cast into outer darkness. That's hell. Okay, that's how they take it. Now, um, there's a lot of things that I don't know. I'll, I'll admit it. But there are some things that I am willing to die for. I ain't many of them. When I ask the question, who do the servants represent? This, to me, is the crux interpretum. Now, the obvious question is, why is the question so important? It's because if this is talking about believer and unbeliever, then it assumes that all believers will prove faithful. And you know that's not true. 
Now, it's possible that Jesus just kind of skips that piece. He, he, he's, he's talking about the, uh, the extremes, the, 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 the saved and the lost. He's not talking about how good you were at being saved. But he does criticize this guy at being bad and being lost. Okay? Now, it just seems to me the thing that bothers people the most is the fact that Jesus says, throw this good-for-nothing servant into outer darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Well, they say, okay, I see in one other place where it says some people went to hell and they were weeping and gnashing of teeth, and so outer darkness must be hell, and that's where weeping and gnashing of teeth is, so therefore they conclude that this has to be talking about an unbeliever, not necessarily about a believer, Okay. Throw the good-for-nothing servant into the outer darkness. Or who is he talking about? I want to give you 12 significant reasons why I know that this is talking about three believers. Three disciples, three servants. It is not talking about an unbeliever. What the consequence is, you, you, you're going to have to also understand what the consequence is. Three significant reasons why this parable is not talking about an unbeliever because Jesus has all along been preaching the gospel of God and not the gospel of Christ. His primary focus, his dominant focus of his ministry was not on death, burial, and resurrection, but was in fact on the coming rule of God on the earth. Now, reason number one. The command to stay alert, Matthew chapter 25, verse 13, Therefore, be alert because you do not know either the day or the hour of my return. Matthew 25, 13 is the last verse of his concluding the parable about the virgins, which also are about believers. It is not about believers and unbelievers. He concludes it by saying, listen, you got to stay awake. Keep your lamps trimmed, boys and girls. Be sure to have enough oil so that when the shout goes out, the bridegroom approaches, you will be able to trim your light, trim your lamp, get up and go meet the bridegroom so you can go into the wedding feast. Otherwise, you're not going to be allowed to go in. You're going to have to stay outside in the outer darkness. Now, the command to stay alert. Now, if, if you can show me, I'm open. Show me in the Bible anywhere where God commands unbelievers to stay alert. Why would Scripture demand an unbeliever to stay alert? He has another problem. 
far greater than being alert. I find no, I find no basis for that. And this sermon was given to Peter, James, John, and Andrew. So if you go back to the beginning of chapter 24, the sermon, uh, the Olivet Discourse, the eschatological discourse of Jesus was given to Peter, James, John, and Andrew. He's telling his disciples, his, the four of them that were there, that they need to tell the others, stay alert. Because you do not know the hour of our Lord's return. Why would he give an alert? Why would he give a warning alert to an unbeliever to stay alert if you're not saved? What reason would he have to stay alert? He got another problem. So number one, the command to stay alert is given to believers. It's never given to unbelievers. That's number one. Number two. The servants are his own. Did you notice in Matthew 25, 14, it says, For it is just like a man about to go on a journey. He called his own servants. He didn't just call servants, any servant anywhere. If you serve it, come. He called his. It was his own ones that he called. Therefore, I would understand this to mean everyone given would have to be already in the army or in the servanthood or servantship of the master. He is not calling on humanity. He's calling on his specific servants. His own, which means belong. They belong to him. The belongingness is evidenced in number three. These are doulos. Douloi would be the Greek plural. These are douloi. For it is just like a man about to go on a journey. He called his own douloi. Slaves. Now, I don't find, and I looked up every reference of the word doulos in the New Testament. Every one of them. And not a passage is douloi referring to an unbeliever. Never. Unless it's here. This would be the only exception. There are lots of slaves. Everybody had them. But when Jesus called someone his douloi, my slave, they belonged to him. Now, you could say, well, maybe they, are not, they haven't become Christian yet. Maybe he knew they were going to become Christian, but they weren't Christian at the time. Yeah, well, no, no. That ain't the way this works. He's calling mine. You belong to me, therefore I can entrust you with what is mine. Number four, he says, Dulois are entrusted, for it is just like a man about to go on a journey. He called his own Dulois, and he entrusted 
which means, ladies and gentlemen, he trusted them. There just is no basis for the idea that God trusts unbelievers. I, I can't find it. Now, one guy went on with a whole book about how God entrusted the Bible to the unbelieving Jews nation. He said, well, the Jewish nation, they were unbelievers. When they received the oracles of God, and they were to hold the oracles until later notice. Well, how did that turn out? To be entrusted with the oracles as a nation of people is different from you as an individual and what it is that you are expected to do with it. It's, it's a totally different thing. Okay? But if you want to build a case, that would be the way you would do it. Okay? If that was the only issue, then you might say, well, it's, it's unclear, but it's not. I got 12 of them, not just one. Okay? They are entrusted, and he says that they are entrusted with his possessions. And what are God's possessions? Now, I also did a study, and there is no passage in the New Testament that uses this word, possessions, as a descriptor of salvation. Salvation is not a possession. Now, the Bible never says it. They say, well, just because it doesn't say it doesn't mean it's not true. Well, yeah, I guess, but... I just find it fascinating that if you're going to say salvation is a possession which you can be given, you then have to say that it is something that can be taken away. And I, I, I'm never, I'll never, I'll never, ne never, never, no, never. Can't be. You see, ladies and gentlemen, the question here is whether or not Scripture is consistent. And Scripture is always consistent. It does not violate. It can't. It simply cannot do it. And a fundamental principle of biblical interpretation is this. You always go with what is absolutely clear first to look at what is not clear. Because what is not clear has to confirm conform to what is clear. You never start with what is unclear and then say, well, we're going to base everything on that. No, you start with what is clear, unmistakable. It is unmistakable that you cannot lose God's declaration of you as righteous. That cannot be undone. It cannot. Therefore, whatever this text is talking about, it is not talking about salvation because salvation is not a possession that God gave you. You are his possession. This is very important. The reason this is important, ladies and gentlemen, is because the consequences of you being unfaithful in your Christian life is going to be quite severe. It's going to be more than you know. <laughs> It, it is going to be quite something.
if I had my way about it, we wouldn't leave this building. I'd keep you here forever. I wouldn't let you leave. I'd bring in porta parties. You wouldn't even be able to go to the bathroom. I'm scared that you'd leave. Because this is important. This is the most important thing that I'm ever going to teach you. There's nothing else that I want to teach you. Because I have a sneaky feeling that a lot of believers are going to be standing there and be shocked at what happens to them because they didn't know it on both the good side and the bad side. And I happen to know that we Christians, especially we in the West, we Americans, have so polluted the gospel with our culture. And we have so intertwined culture with gospel that people can actually get up on television and preach that God wants you to be wealthy, healthy, and prosperous, and that that singularly is the sign of your faithfulness to God. And it is not true. It simply is not true. You are going to have to earn it if you're going to get it. You're going to have to get it. And I want to tell you, you're going to have to bow to the altar of this world and walk away. There simply is no other way. You know, I've gotten hooked on the uh, chosen. And um, I watched the whole thing through, and then I went back and I watched it again, second time to make sure I didn't miss nothing. Now I'm on the third time. And I don't. I really don't understand why I'm. It, 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 because I mean, you know, they, 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 the story is all wound, and they do stuff that you know is not. It's not about being biblical. It's not a lot of the stuff. They have to make up stuff to to fill in all these gaps, and you know, it's that's not that's not. It it may have happened. I doubt it, but they, you know, if they'd done it just according to what's in the Bible, it would have been about two hours. It's been over. <laughs> you know, they got, you know, three years. I don't know how much long it took to make each season. but And, and it said there were going to be seven. And now I'm wondering, am I going to die before I get to see all this? <laughs> it's, it's very bad, very bad. Because <laughs> I, I don't like to watch stuff until it's all completed anyway. But anyway, I've, I've just been, I was blown away by how this guy, and the, the, the director I want to meet if I in fact, I want to write him a letter and ask him, will he see me if I come see him? Because I, I just want to know, is it, one, is he a believer? Does he believe, number one? Number two, does he understand the magnitude of what he's captured? And one of the things that just blew me away was how the disciples were so worldly in their thinking compared to what Jesus was trying to do. And I want to say to you, ladies and gentlemen, I understand that. I understand it because I certainly realize just how worldly my mind is, just how worldly I am. I spent my whole life, I've spent my whole life chasing foolishness, trying to do and to be and to have and to get and to see what is total foolish. 
totally. Because I realized that he gave me a possession. And it's only but the grace of God that has been used, if even poorly, for him and not the world. Because I could have easily gone that way. Very easily. So I decided not to go to the world, but decided to use it, though, but to use it for its own benefit. Not God's. It's far more serious than I can tell you. However many years you got left on this earth, dedicate it. I mean, dedicate yourself. Be singularly focused. Start, get a pencil with the biggest eraser you can find and just start erasing stuff out of your life. Anything that is extravagant, extraneous, anything that's unnecessary, just, just get rid of it. Be singularly undiluted in your devotion and commitment to receive commendation, exaltation, and honoration at the appearance of Christ. Father, help us today to be sober. When you told that rich young ruler that he had to give away everything that he had, and come follow you, you meant to get what you're offering requires singular devotion. Thanks to each of you for joining me in this study. Visit kingdomalive.us. That's www.kingdomalive.us for more information. Please tell a friend and join us next time. Until then, train to reign.